Today we are in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. God, thank you for your word. And as today we talk about our adversary, not that we want to give him too much credit and not that we want to lean the other extreme where we just don't believe he even exists and it's just folklore and uh, fictional character. Help us approach this balanced and I realize, God, as I speak, I speak as a person who is fallen, broken, that is imperfect, and ask that your grace would be here with us this morning as we explore this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. So the past two weeks, we've looked at some pretty important topics, humility and anxiety. And from those studies, we looked at how the presence of humility is directly correlated to the absence of anxiety or how the presence of anxiety is directly correlated to the absence of humility. And so we looked at self-absorption, we looked at self-pity, selfishness, our pride, how that all leads to anxiety. And so there are many, many, many forms of this self-centeredness. I just wanted to bring up one that was just kind of more of an observation because of just my travel or my commute back and forth from work to school. And it's this. Have you guys noticed how many psychic locations there are? <laughs> there are a lot. If you've lived here for over 10 years, you've noticed this, how they just kind of popped up. I even Google mapped it to see how many there are. Just in a two-mile radius from the lake, there are 16. And that's just the ones that popped up because I was looking. I was like, I know there's one right there, and it's not listed here. And get this, that's more than the number of Starbucks in all of Berkeley, Oakland, and Alameda combined. <laughs> Starbucks. Psychics. Awesome or what? I bring this up just because of this. It's like the quintessential example of self-importance. You ever think about this? About how, like, why do they exist? Because it's a place where people can look to experience something other than God. And if you're talking about the absence of humility and the presence of anxiety, why else do you go? That's why you go there, right? And so it's places like this where we find the activity of those dark spirits, devil. I think they're alive and well there. I think that they're present there. And if you've lived in the East Bay for 10, 15 plus years, you've noticed how these places have just been popping up faster than any franchise you can name. And it's not just these places. I'm just bringing that up as just like a simple example. But it's anything of the occult, which can be found in a lot of things. Go to any store, even Whole Foods, because you put on those headphones and you start listening to that music and I start feeling something different, like tribal or something. I don't know. Or it's in different print media. It's all sorts of stuff. You just go into any store and you just see stuff that influences you in kind of a dark way. And so here, Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So this morning, we'll look at this adversary. We'll look at what our actions are to be. And so let's first take a look at who this is. Now, we know that in the Bible, we are instructed to love our enemies, right? Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Matthew says, you have heard that it was said, and Jesus says this, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And these instructions are for us to extend to one another, but not so to the devil, for the Christian. Why is this? He is the Christian's enemy. He is your adversary because your life has been touched, transformed by Jesus. And without Jesus, you're not his enemy because the sin nature within you aligns you with him. So he still wants to destroy you, but he doesn't have to worry about you. But if you are in Christ, he wants to destroy you, and he has to work at doing that. Jesus and his gracious redemption of your life through his own life has marked you, has put you in a target, a crosshairs for the devil. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We all started out in darkness where the devil, Satan, reigns. And it's not until we have been redeemed by God's grace do we enter into the light. 1 John chapter 5, verses 19-20. through 20. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We live in darkness unless redeemed by God's grace. And people will dwell in that darkness for everlasting until Jesus rescues them. That darkness is separation from God definition of hell, right? Separation from God. Jesus brings us from that darkness into the light, into communion with God. Heaven. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So in essence, in darkness. Verse 2. In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So people outside of Jesus assisting in the accomplishing of the schemes of the evil one. So some people, they do this deliberately, others just unknowingly. And unless people receive the gospel, they stay there. They will remain where we once were. Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mankind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you share this with people who don't know Jesus, 
some of them may think you are nuts, you're crazy. That the Bible portrays humanity in this kind of a light, that's wrong. Belief in a devil, belief in darkness, belief in sin, you're nuts. And the thing is, is we're not talking about unspiritual or non-spiritual people here. Most people I've spoken to in the Bay Area are very spiritual. If you've shared the gospel at all with people, you know this to be true. You will very rarely meet a true atheist. It's rare. And the divide isn't only between those who trust in Jesus and those who don't. There's division within those who claim to follow Jesus. That we don't agree on all these sorts of things. There are people who claim to love Jesus and follow Jesus and they are sincere about it. But they don't abide by his word in its entirety from my observation. They take some of what they want and they leave some of what they want out and they just kind of sparse through the things that they want and things that they don't want. What did Jesus say about spiritual religious people who believe like this? John chapter 8, verse 42 through 47, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reasons why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Our adversary is real, and he will use any means necessary to separate you from God. He will attack everything at every angle to separate you from God, even the things that seemingly look good. And unless we are sober-minded, we are watchful, we'll be fooled, fooled by this adversary. Now, what's the definition of this Greek word for adversary? It's the opponent. It's the opponent in a suit of law. That's who the devil is. He is your accuser. Right? Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now some of his accusations are actually accurate. We are sinners. And what we are accused of, it can be right on. But some of those accusations may be false. What's the definition of the Greek word for devil? It's this. He's the false accuser. It's also the slanderer. False accuser and slanderer. So while some of his accusations might be true, some are false. And as a false accuser and slanderer, he deceives. And this is what happens in Genesis chapter 3 when he deceives Eve. He said this, Did God actually say... And that's what the accuser, the slanderer, continues to do with us on issues that God has already spoken on. He's really crafty in how he brings that question into someone's mind. Did God actually say that? Did he say that? Take a look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's the same tactic today. The same thing. Did God actually say that? Did he say that? And if the answer is, no, God didn't say that when he actually did, then great. He's deceived you and we move on or he moves on. But if the answer is yes, God said that, then he goes on to use verse 4. You will not surely die. In other words, that's not what he meant. That's not what he meant. And then he goes on to verse 5. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, we know better. We know better. And you're like God. You have a mind. You're bright. You can reason these things out just like him. It's the same. And you can make the same call as to what's good and what's evil. It's the same. We can do this, right? And so that's the pattern. Did God actually say that? That's not what he meant. You make the call. You're bright. You can decide between good and evil. We don't need him. And who cares about what he calls good and evil? You and I, we know. We know what's good and evil. That's the pattern. It's the same thing today. Way back then, today. And there lie some of the issues that we're dealing with in our day, questioning God and the authority of his word. False accusations, slanderous claims, and Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, this word prowl is a little more than just walking. Prowling is walking with a purpose. And the purpose is to take advantage of an opportunity. It's an opportunistic walk, right? Eyes open to opportunity. But there's a negative connotation to it. Ever walk down a street and notice all the broken glass down along the street? If you're an Oakland resident, you know what this is. Those are opportunistic crimes. Criminals who see an opportunity. I was at breakfast with a friend in West Oakland a few months back. You guys ever eaten at Brown Sugar Kitchen? I mean, that's awesome. Chicken and waffles, grits, delicious. And so we came out, find my passenger window broken, along with several other cars on the same street, right? Opportunity crime. They see a backpack, they see a duffel bag, they see anything that they perceive has value inside of it, forget it. Glasses broken, belongings taken. So my friend's backpack was in my passenger seat, and you know the feeling. You come out, you're like, you're kidding me. Like that's a hundred, two, three hundred dollars there for like a duffel bag or backpack that had like dirty gym clothes. Why did you do that? Like, why? If you just asked me, I would have given it to you. I don't care. Now, how many of you have had your glass broken into here in Oakland? Welcome. <laughs> right, so if you get your glass broken, don't feel bad. It is a rite of passage. It's, we all relate broken glass, right? This is essentially what the devil does. It's just kind of an analogy here. Some place the analogy will break down, but go with me on this, okay? He prowls, looking to take advantage of a situation. It's an opportunity crime. 
Right, so Job chapter one, verse seven. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, probably through West Oakland, and from walking up and down on it. He's prowling. Just prowling for victims, breaking into their lives, taking what does not belong to him. And for anyone naive enough to believe he won't do anything, it's like parking your car out here in Oakland with your purse, your laptop bag, your duffel bag, inside of it in plain view, thinking that it's going to be there with your glass still all intact the next day. Try it if you don't believe me. <laughs> Try it. And maybe you are fortunate enough that no one prowled on the street that day. But sooner or later, if you're not sober-minded, if you are not watchful of what you do, It'll happen to you. It'll happen. First day my family moved back to Oakland when I was installed as the senior pastor here over four years ago. First night, car broken into. Because I was living in Lafayette. I totally forgot. I totally forgot. I was like, I forgot where I'm moving back to. From that point on, I was on it. I was watchful, sober-minded. Then a few months ago, I didn't see my friend leave the backpack. I just didn't see it. Got me! That's like the devil. Just prowling around for that opportunity, and we open ourselves up to that opportunity when we aren't watchful, when we step into things that we're not supposed to step in, when, when we're looking at things of the occult, when we reject what the Word of God already tells us, but we interpret it in a way by what society tells us to interpret it as and, and what's more acceptable to people. And when we flood our minds with the things that don't allow us to be sober-minded and watchful, it'll be those times that we get caught. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This roaring lion concept here, this was just awesome to me. I've been to Kenya several times because we have ministry there. And I visited the Masai Mara, you know, that national reserve there. It is awesome. It is so amazing. Have you ever heard a lion really roar? It's magnificent. They can be heard for over five miles away. It's incredible. And so I went on one of these safaris and, and I got to see lions. But it wasn't before or during the hunt. It was after the hunt. So they're just like bloody mouth, big old belly. It's just like... The thing about lions, they don't roar when they're full like that and they're fully satisfied and they're just like vegging out. Just They don't roar when they're stalking prey. When do they roar? Why do they roar? Lions roar for several reasons, but one of the biggest reasons is they claim their territory. Right? They're marking their territory just as they do with their feces and their urine. They do this also with their roar to warn others that this is mine. Right? So lions roar also when there is a reliable food source because they can afford to be territorial. So that's when they roar. We know that this world is temporarily the devil's. So you look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, right? He says, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you. This is Satan speaking to Jesus. If you will fall down and worship me. Why can he say that? 
because it kind of was his. Right? And in John chapter 12, verse 31, John chapter 14, verse 30, the devil is referred to as the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he's referred to as the God of this world. In their case, the God of this world was blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is the roaring lion. This is his territory for now. This is his. Seeking someone to devour. These are his hunting grounds. This is his domain. This is his reliable food source. He wants to devour you. Doesn't matter how, he just wants to destroy you, to separate you from God, to stop you from exercising your faith, to stop you from confessing sins, seeking forgiveness, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. Anything it takes to mislead you, he will do that. Even to disguise himself as something that is good. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Church, do not be fooled by what is seemingly good. Healing is good. Prophecy is good. Preaching is good. Doing justice is good. But we have to keep in mind that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That he does that. So don't be surprised if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. We are to be sober-minded. We are to be watchful. But let's not go to an extreme and fear the devil. We don't have to fear He's not equal to God. Who was the devil before he was cast away? Ezekiel speaks to this. Ezekiel chapter 28, starting in verse 14. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. That's who Satan is. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, and this will tell us what is going to eventually happen to him. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Because before this time, the devil had access to heaven, as in Job chapter 1, verse 7, going to and fro, right? And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and saint, the deceiver of the whole world. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So no more access to God. That's it. This is also written in Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And this is to remind us of why we don't have to fear. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. No need to fear him. Jesus conquered the grave. Something about the devil, I think we sometimes give him too much credit for what's happening around us, and then sometimes we don't give him any credit for what's happening. And I think both extremes are off, and both extremes lend to him doing whatever he wants. You credit him too much, and he occupies your mind space, and your energy, and your time, and your resources, and he occupies those fears, and he has victory over you. You go to the other hand, you don't give him any credit at all, and nothing at all, that's a victory for him. Then I have to worry about you. And you go to the extreme of thinking he doesn't exist and that that's all fictional stuff and it's all like folklore and that is a great way for him to continue prowling. Just doing whatever he wants. We have to remain sober-minded. We have to remain watchful, but not fearful. Sober-minded meaning calm and collected. Now, these aren't passive actions. These are actually in the imperative form, just like they are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, when he wrote, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. And then also in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. See, you and I, we can't just veg. We can't just sit around being ambivalent with our actions. We have to choose our actions. Your inaction can be a harmful thing. While you rest, while you're just kind of kicking back, what are you doing? You know, those activities that help you relax, how are you going about that? You know, some of us, we listen to music while we do our hobbies or we work or we're doing yard work or whatever when we relax. What are you listening to? What are you listening to? Why does it even matter? Because the things that you intake influence your output. It just does. Those movies, those TV shows you're watching, those games that you're playing, the things you're reading, it's all influencing you. Just like what you eat, drink, inject, smoke, all that kind of stuff, it all influences. Now, we can't forget who's writing this to us, right? Peter. Do you think Peter knows a thing or two about being sober-minded and watchful? you think? What did Jesus tell Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, verse 38? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we know from Peter he didn't do it. He couldn't even tell a girl who didn't have her driver's permit yet that he was a follower of Jesus. He couldn't do it. He denied Jesus. Now, would you or I fare any better in that situation? How many of us watch and pray? How many of us are sober-minded and watchful? Watchful meaning we're alert and we're cautious. Now, along with this, we find further instruction from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. Now, we are told to flee from certain things, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, flee from these things. And those things were the prideful reasons of those who mishandle God's word and who believe that following God means that we can get something out of that relationship with God. 
Last one. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Flee youthful passions. But when it comes to the devil, we're never told to flee. Have you noticed that? We're not told to flee. We are instructed to resist. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. And as I read this, keep in mind how many times Paul instructs us to stand. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the evil schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It's not that we're all that powerful. You look at verse 10 again here. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Our theology needs to be based on truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. And this is how the devil and Jesus battled it out during Jesus' temptations in Matthew chapter 4. Each of those three times that Satan tempted Jesus, what did Jesus reply with? It is written. He didn't do anything else. Verses 4, 7, and 10 of Matthew chapter 4. It is written. That's it. He didn't take a swing. He didn't dodge. He didn't parry. He didn't do anything. It is written. Jesus had all His armor on. And He wielded that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, masterfully. And Satan attacks the same way today. To have you doubt truth. To have you compromise in righteousness. To bring about a prideful anxiety. To mistrust God. To disbelieve your salvation. To distrust the word of God. It's the same thing. Resist him firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's a Christian unity. We have brothers and sisters standing with us. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All throughout the world, we are standing, resisting, fighting a spiritual battle together. We're in this fight together. And we know from Romans chapter 8, verse 31, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, there may be some of us who doubt that there is an enemy. And I pray, Lord, that your grace would be upon them as they might not be sober-minded and watchful for those things. And I ask, God, that your grace would be there protecting them from the evil one who's prowling and seeking to destroy them. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters around the world who are 
facing persecution, who are being spiritually attacked. I ask, God, that you would be the victor. Father, we don't want to give too much credit to the enemy, but we also don't want to ignore that he's there. So help us, God, to have that in a right framework as we move forward with our lives. We thank you for your word, and we ask, God, that you would help us to know it well enough that it is true to us, that it's not just kind of regurgitation of some memory verses or something like that, but it's something that has transformed us and we apply it to our lives as truly as a sword. God, thank you for loving us and thank you for using your servant Peter just to make us aware of some truths that we need to keep in mind. In Jesus' name, amen.